Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Welcome back to Mama Mystery. I am your host, Kelly. And I am your co-host, Austin. And before we get started with today's episode, we have a few new Patreons to shout out. Let's go. Jenna Cassidy. Yeah. Mary Rose. Woo-woo. Troy and Jessica Pollan. Awesome. Caitlin Sells. Let's go. Shelby Curtis. Yep. Jamie Miller. Mm-hmm. Hannah Cruz. And Aubrey Christmas. Hell yes. Heck yes. Thank you guys so much for joining our Patreon. If you're interested in joining, you can go to patreon.com slash mama mystery. You get ad-free episodes. You get stickers in the mail. You get discount on any merchandise, which I need to come up with a new design. Exclusive episodes. Autographs from Kelly. Yeah. Autographs in the form of the thank you note that comes with the stickers, which, you know. Still autographed. It's It's got my signature on it. <laughs> there we go. All right. So I have gotten a ton of requests to cover this story because it has gone pretty viral on social media, but also because at the time of this recording, no arrests have been made in this case. So this is a true mystery. It actually is. Let's go. Today's story takes place in Williamson County, Tennessee, which is kind of southwest of Nashville. Um, Throughout this story, we are going to be bringing light to a lot of corruption, corruption within a church a court system, and within some of the highest offices in the country. Corruption that seems to be fed by two things, which is power and money. Isn't it always? Follow the money. Yep. This is the story of the Solomon family. So we're going to start out with the parents, Angie and Aaron. Angie did not have a very easy childhood. Her home life included a lot of abuse at a young age, but despite having a difficult upbringing, Angie excelled in basketball and in singing. And after high school, she actually got her doctorate in pharmacy and had a very promising future, purchasing her own home on her own. Then she connected with a guy that she knew from high school, Aaron Solomon. They hit it off and started dating, and within six weeks, they were married because Angie got pregnant. Holy shit, shotgun wedding. Mm-hmm. Literally. At the time, Aaron was working as a news anchor and a sports reporter for WSMV. He excelled at his job and was awarded multiple Emmys. Their son, Grant, was born in 2002, and they had a daughter, Gracie, a few years later in 2006. Their relationship was very tumultuous, with Angie Angie claiming that Aaron was emotionally and physically abusive towards her. But Angie was determined to make their marriage work and started going to counseling to get help with some of her PTSD and the struggles within her marriage. In 2008, Angie discovered that Aaron was having multiple affairs and spending money on prostitutes. Still, Angie was really desperate to keep her family together, so she began seeing Dr. Fortrell, who diagnosed her with PTSD and also diagnosed Aaron with a sex addiction. In January of 2011, Aaron was forced to resign from the TV station after it was discovered that he had inappropriate materials on his work computer and his phone. 
Six months later, Aaron's aunt Ruth died and left him a multi-million dollar trust. And you know how sometimes money can just bring out the worst in people? Cocaine and hookers. Exactly. Would be the worst in people in this situation, I would imagine. Okay. Have you ever seen that interview where they're talking to somebody and they're like, what would you do if you won all the money? And he said, cocaine and hookers. And they were like, oh, we're live. Sorry. <laughs> yes, I yeah. have seen that. With that's it, what yeah, it was in my about head. the lottery. Um, anyway, so yeah, that's exactly what it did. It brought out the worst in Aaron. It gave him even more power and control now that he had all this money just fall into his lap. So the fighting at home got worse, and the way he was treating his kids worsened as well. By September of 2012, Angie actually started planning how she was going to leave with the kids. In early 2013, police were called over a domestic disturbance at the house, and one of the responding EMTs recalled what happened that night. He said that when they arrived at the Solomon residence, Aaron came outside and was very cordial to them, but insisted that his wife was mentally ill and that she was the reason for this whole disturbance. And he put on a really good show for the EMTs, being nice and making pleasantries. But then when Angie and the kids stepped outside, his whole demeanor changed. He appeared to be overcome with rage. His face got red and his facial expression showed that he was very angry. Aaron tried to walk towards Angie, but was stopped by the Nashville PD. When the situation resolved and the EMTs left, this particular EMT said that the guys in the truck all made comments about how they knew who the aggressor was in this call, and it was Aaron. Around this same time, five-year-old Gracie admitted to Angie that when Aaron gives her baths, he puts things up inside her. Oh, no. I hate this. Oh. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, so Angie actually confronted Aaron about this and she said that he admitted it, but told her that if she ever told anyone, he would take the kids from her for good. He had the money, he had the power and he had the influence to do it. And it all kind of made sense to Angie at this point, because she remembered how Aaron always insisted on giving Gracie the baths, which is just so, so inappropriate. What I mean, a dirt bag. uh, yeah, yeah. A few months later, in April of 2013, Aaron took a check from the desk of Kenny Dallas at the Grace Christian Academy, which is the school where Grant and Gracie both went. He wrote the check for one, well, it was $1,100, and he made it out to himself and forged the signature of Mendy Hicks, who was an employee at the school. So the bank alerted Mendy because she was never actually authorized to sign checks from the school. So Mendy realizes this and confronts Aaron, and he admits to both Mendy and Angie that he did, in fact, sign that check. He wrote the check. He forged the check, but no charges were ever filed. Just a couple weeks later, the day before Austin, the day before that trust fund from the aunt was supposed to start dispersing over $100,000 a month in funds. Holy shit. Aaron attempted to kill Angie by strangling her with the cord from a hairdryer. Grant actually witnessed the entire thing, but Angie survived and never told authorities because she wanted to protect Grant from Aaron, but also because she didn't want Grant to have to testify against Aaron. He was still so young. And maybe she thought if she could just leave and get the kids out, that that would be enough. Like so many women in this situation, you have to be so methodical about how you escape or it could cost you your life. The very next day, Angie arrived home to find Aaron and his parents in their house. 
they had staged essentially this intervention and forced her to go to Parthenon Centennial, which is a hospital. And they had already told the hospital that she was suicidal and that the event the night before was actually a suicide attempt. When Angie got to the hospital, she confided in the doctor that that she was not suicidal, that Aaron tried to kill her. So they kept her there overnight for protection, and Angie was granted a restraining order against Aaron. When Angie was released the next day, she found that Aaron had taken her kids and was refusing to answer any of her calls. She had no idea where Grant or Gracie were or if they were okay. She tried to call Aaron's parents, but they wouldn't answer either. The following day was Mother's Day, so she hoped that she would be allowed to see her kids then, but Aaron didn't allow it. Instead, he called police and told them that Angie was mentally ill and suicidal again. And when police showed up, they were quickly able to determine that Angie was of sound mind and not, in fact, suicidal, so they left. But there was still no telling where the kids were. And in a tale as old as time, Aaron bartered with Angie by saying that if she lifted the restraining order, he would let her see the kids. Without any kind of custody arrangement in place, he is their parent. He's a, he is legally allowed to have his kids, as unfair as this whole situation may be. So Angie calls her friend, who is a lawyer, and is able to find out that Aaron had already filed for divorce and that he had also filed for a protection order for him and the kids against Angie. So he's plotting behind the scenes. Yes. He is playing chess. In June, Angie and Aaron appeared in court before Judge Philip E. Smith for their divorce hearing. Aaron's lawyers were David Scott and Michael Parsley. Despite Angie's doctors testifying in her favor, Judge Smith ordered that she undergo another evaluation by a different doctor, one that he chose. So she did, and that doctor, Dr. Freeman, wrote a report agreeing with Angie's doctors that she's loving, caring, and a capable mother— But for whatever reason, Judge Smith dismissed the report that he asked for, and he gave Aaron full custody of the kids and even ordered Angie to pay child support, despite knowing Aaron had just inherited this huge trust. And then interestingly enough, that lawyer for Aaron, Scott Parsley, donated $1,000 to Judge Smith's campaign, even though he ran unopposed and never even held a single campaign event. Oh my gosh. In February of 2014, Angie hadn't seen her kids for at least six months when finally Aaron lets them see her. Gracie's eyes are sunken in. She has huge dark bags under both of her eyes. At this point, the kids admit that Aaron was rationing their food, that he was still putting soap up inside of her during her baths, and that he insisted on bathing her every time she had to bathe. She couldn't just bathe by herself. She was terrified of her father. And then Angie recorded a part of that conversation about what was going on in his house in hopes that maybe she could use it as evidence against Aaron at some point. By March of 2015, Aaron still has full custody of the kids and refuses to let Angie get quality time with them. She's allowed to come to some of their games and sit with the kids, but that's it. They don't get to see her at Christmas or any other holidays. How the hell? This is so backwards. From even like how things just normally go, you know? Yes. During one FaceTime call, Gracie showed Angie some bruising that she had on the inside of her thighs. And she said that her dad insisted it was just from her bathing suit. Like that makes no sense. 
In April, Aaron had Angie thrown in jail over Easter weekend to stop her from talking about his abuse of Gracie, but his reasoning was that Angie hadn't been paying child support, as if he needed the money, and that is why he had Angie thrown in jail. By had her thrown in jail, he just reached out, because was she not paying child support? I guess not. And so he just reached out and pursued it. Mm Mm-hmm. Press charges. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. At this point, Aaron is in complete control, and Angie is just more powerless by the day. And this is where things get even worse for Angie. With Aaron in control, he has connections within the private school where Grant and Gracie go. I'm sure he's donating large amounts to the school, and there are a lot of prestigious parents at this school. Judge Deanna Johnson and her husband, State Senator Jack Johnson, go to the church, along with the Tennessee Governor Bill Lee. And despite this connection, Judge Deanna Johnson never recuses herself from any of the court proceedings that come across her desk regarding the Solomon family. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. So I'm going to get kind of deep and vulnerable here, but when Austin and I first started dating, once we got past that yummy honeymoon phase, we really got into the thick of it. You know, like in the beginning, you just kind of brush your craziness under the rug and you keep it there until you get just comfortable enough to let it out. Well, the more comfortable I got with Austin, the more some of those toxic qualities started to expose themselves. I was a horrible communicator and I was quick to anger. I would expect Austin to read my mind and I would become so furious when he didn't that I would lash out. I would raise my voice. I would say things I didn't mean and then I regretted. I would just get so hot, like literally physically hot that I felt completely out of control. So I knew I needed help. So I sought it out. I recognized that I had some issues I needed to work through. It was an inside job. I knew I had them. I knew exactly what it all stemmed from. I just didn't know how to process it and be better. I tried a local therapist here in town, but I was discouraged because for one, they took forever to get into. And two, during our short meeting, all I really got were breathing exercises when I really thought that this would be a time to like kind of get into the root of things right away. And after that first appointment, I knew I wouldn't see her again for another couple weeks because they're just so booked up. But then came BetterHelp. Now, I know BetterHelp is a sponsor of this show, but let me please tell you, I used BetterHelp before they were ever a sponsor of mine. I spent 100% of my money on the full price to use BetterHelp, and I do not regret it at all. I matched with a therapist, and I got to message her at my own convenience, which was so nice, having kids and not being able to like respond right away, just finding time for myself to like genuinely sit down and respond. She was always quick to respond with insight and tools. She asked me questions that made me dig deeper. I can honestly say therapy is probably the number one reason why Austin and I are still together and why our relationship is such a strong one today. Getting to know yourself can be a lifelong process, especially because we're always growing and changing. Therapy is all about deepening your self-awareness and understanding because sometimes we don't know what we want or why we react the way we do until we talk through things. BetterHelp connects you with a licensed therapist who can take you on that journey of self-discovery from wherever you are. If you're thinking of starting therapy, please give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. 
Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash mystery today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash mystery. Now, in May of 2018, Angie found out that Aaron had been grooming underage girls online, and some of these girls actually attended Grant and Gracie's school. So what he would do was he would take pictures of girls at sporting events, like at the girls' games, and then he would ask Grant for the girls' Snapchats just to send them the pictures that he took, right? Like, so creepy. That is creepy behavior. Yes. So Angie carefully tries to navigate how to handle this, given the issues that she's already had with Aaron. So she met with Sheriff Jeff Long from the Williamson County Sheriff's Office and made him aware of Aaron's behavior towards some of the female students at Grace Chapel. So then Jeff Long assigned Tamika Sanders to the case. Tamika quickly realizes that this behavior goes beyond just those students and actually trickles down to the sexual abuse of Gracie as well. Six months later, Jeff Long is promoted to the commissioner for the Department of Safety and Homeland Security by none other than Grace Chapel member Governor Bill Lee. On May 16th, Angie emailed one of the church elders, Kurt Beasley. She said, quote, I am concerned for the lives of myself and my children. And he responds saying there's nothing he can do. So she meets with another elder of the church, Ron Gonser, and Pastor Rick Kua, pleading with them and telling her what they've been through. And rather than call DCS or police, they prayed over her and anointed her with oil. Like, that's going to fix all these very, very serious problems. The real things that are going on. Yes. In 2018, Grant and Gracie have finally had enough, and they run away from Aaron's house and flee to their mother's. How old are they at this point? I believe Gracie is about 12, and Grant would be about 16. So rather than retrieve the kids himself, Aaron sends two sheriff's deputies to Angie's house to pick up the kids, likely to scare them into submission so they would not run away again. In August of 2018, after bringing Grant to a baseball tournament in Cary, North Carolina, Aaron says that he and Gracie have to return to Nashville the very next day for a court hearing. So they stop at a hotel on the way, and Aaron books a room with one bed, despite Gracie begging him to get a room with two beds. Gracie eventually describes what happened that night in a video that Angie and Gracie have posted on social media in desperation for someone to listen to their pleas for help. And in that video, Gracie details the events that happened that night with her father. It's mm, sickening. I'm it's incredibly sh- sad. I'm not even going to talk about it. I just can't imagine the unease and the trauma she must have felt that night, being forced to sleep in a bed with a man she's terrified of. That's obviously sexually abusing her. Mm-hmm. It's freaking terrible. So the next day was that hearing, and the judge refused to hear Gracie's testimony and ordered that Grant and Gracie would remain in Aaron's custody. The judge also ordered that the family do family counseling. And during these counseling sessions, Aaron made a promise that he would not show up unannounced at the kids' school anymore. But on August 31st, he did exactly that and showed up unannounced to take Gracie out of school. Gracie was terrified because she didn't understand why he was even there. So she starts frantically texting her mom. She texted her a selfie of herself crying, saying, I don't know what to do or where to go. 
Gracie ran to the principal's office of Rona Branson. So within this private school, there's like multiple principals, right? So Rona Branson was the elementary principal. She told Rona about the abuse and what her father does to her. And yet she was dismissive and called in the school's headmaster, Robbie Mason. How is nobody blowing the whistle and saying, cut the shit? I don't know. I don't know. It's infuriating. Mm-hmm. He never reports the accusations of, of abuse, despite being a mandated reporter. And instead, he orders Gracie to get into her dad's car, saying that her complaints are old news. What the hell? In mid-September, there's another court hearing, and this time the judge watches a video interview that Gracie did with a forensic investigator. And after watching Gracie's testimony in that video, the judge decided to let Gracie stay with Angie. Finally. She had to feel helpless for all that time. Oh, my God. Like, you'd feel helpless every day that ticks by. You're talking six months later, ten months later. Mm -hmm. Like, think of all the shit happening during that time. Yes, you're literally trapped. Nobody is listening to you. Nobody is helping you. Mm-hmm. You can't go to the one safe haven you know, which is your mom's house, your own mother. You can't go. Like, I just cannot even fathom. I can't fathom it. So at school, Gracie confided in some of her friends about the abuse that she was suffering at the hands of her dad. And one of the officials that caught wind of this brought Gracie in and basically told her to stop talking about it because it was upsetting other kids at the school. So Grant goes into the school himself, and he ordered a meeting with Rona and a few of the other administrators at the school, which they tell him that they were trying to put a stop to it because they wanted to save Gracie's reputation. Certainly not their own, though. Certainly not. Certainly it had nothing to do with their own reputation, right? Mm -hmm. If it isn't already clear, let me just say this explicitly. The church and the administrators at the school are incredibly loyal to Aaron and support him fully. Rather than listen to the concerns of Grant or Gracie or Angie and multiple personal friends of theirs who have witnessed the abuse, they stood hand in hand with an abuser who is worth tons of money and could have heavy influence within their church. Is it public how much he's donated? No, not that I know of. But Grant was about to turn 18 in June, and he felt like once he became an adult, maybe he would be taken more seriously in court and planned to testify against his father. His birthday was in June. On the morning of July 20th, 2020, just one month after turning 18, Grant pulled into the parking lot of Ward Performance Institute for baseball practice. Grant was an extraordinary pitcher. He parked right next to his dad, who was meeting him there for practice. This was the first time the two of them would be alone in years. After he parked, Grant got out and walked to the back of his truck to unload his baseball equipment. And just as he was unloading his bag, the truck rolled backwards, dragging him across the pavement of the parking lot, down a hill, and into a ditch, pinning him between the front of the truck and the rocks in the ditch. According to Aaron, he said he was parked next to Grant and looked down at his phone to answer a work email when he realized what had happened. But by the time he realized it, it was too late. You didn't realize it when it was rolling all the way across the parking lot into the ditch? You didn't hear Grant scream? You didn't realize your truck was moving? Well, he was in a separate vehicle, but still, you don't don't see that. It's parked right next to you. So here is the audio from the 911 call that Aaron placed immediately after the accident. 
I'm trying. Where's your emergency? There, it's 1357 South Water Street. It's off 109. Please hurry. You said 57? Please hurry. Okay, what's going on? 1357. Uh, my, my son's truck backed over him, and he's, it's rolled over him and dragged him into the ditch, and it's on top of him. He's trapped under the truck, and I, I, yeah, he, I, I, somehow it drug him underneath it. Yes, my son is under it. I'm trying to, no, I'm, I'm trying to call 911. Okay, what's your name? Oh, my God. My name is Aaron Solomon. And you said, oh, my God. 1357 Southwater Avenue, right? Yes. How old yes. is the male? He's 18. He just turned 18 a couple weeks, about a month ago. It's my son. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. This is not good. Is he awake? Oh, please hurry. I don't know. I don't think so. He's not uh, He's not alert, right? No, he's out. And he's trapped. I got three guys here, and he's trapped under the truck. Okay. Oh, my God. I understand, sir. Stay on the phone with me while we get somebody out there. What's your name? Aaron Solomon. All right, Aaron. Huh? What kind of vehicle is it? It's a Toyota Tacoma, Tacoma and it's the, the vehicle has to, he's underneath the vehicle. Okay, I've got and the, that. And, and it's, okay, I've got that. What color is it? It's a white truck. That's my son. He, it's somehow it backed up. Yeah. Yeah, I'm on one. I'm on with nine one one right now. Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god! Was your son working on it? No, no, he was just getting out of it. It's the hill. It's we're on an incline, and I guess he didn't have it in park or something, or it wasn't engaged, or. Oh, oh my God! Oh is my God! I can't believe still not responding? No, no. And he's still under no. truck. No one can get yes. out from under it. No, it's no. We saw it's, units and route to you. I'm just asking you questions for we can huh? update him. Okay? Can you check and see huh? he's breathing? I, I, somebody's telling me that he's coming too. Okay, maybe. Is waking up? Maybe. Kind of Kind of keeping still, so he is. Well, he can't, yeah, he can't move. I don't think he can move. I, I don't know. Okay, I no, he can't move. He's trapped. Okay, well, we got somebody in route now. When he wakes uh, up, he might I'm be telling scared. Him, then somebody I'm get down him. there and talk to him. Yeah, somebody talk to him. There. Shit. Gee, there's blood. What, is he facing up or down? He's facing up. They said he may aspirate. We need to hurry. Oh, my God. So, does he have blood coming out of his mouth? Yeah, he's, yeah. there's blood coming out. Yeah, somehow it drug him down, I think. I don't know whether it wasn't in park or what, or if it didn't engage the brake, or it drug him underneath somehow. Okay. They said he's facing up. Okay. But he's bleeding from his mouth, so... Grant, turn your face to the side if you can, barely, but be careful. Don't move him, okay? No, we can't move him. 
We can't. We can't move him. So way too casual and like got that scripted, I care sound to him. Mm -hmm. And then also you said before all this that he was alone, but now he's saying he's with three guys. Yeah. So Aaron never once went down the hill to check on Grant. He stayed at the top of the hill the entire time, seemingly communicating with these three men who were down by the truck. Even when the operator told him to talk to Grant, Aaron stayed at the top of the hill. So how would he have known that Grant was trapped? How would he have known there was blood coming from his mouth? He never went down the hill to see him. How do you know that? Because he says that. He he has said before that he never went down to check on Grant, that he never saw him. Um, So I also want to point out, just so I can like kind of set the scene for you, the way that this whole scene is set up, I guess, is the the building is sitting at the top of the hill, right? And then there's the parking lot, and then there's like a hill that goes down into a ditch, and then there's like a main road, like a busy road. I don't know. I don't know what type of road it is. Mm-hmm. That was dumb. But I guess it's like, it's a busy road, I guess. Yeah. So the way that the car was positioned when emergency responders arrived was the truck was facing downwards into the ditch. So by his account, so like I know I'm using my hands, which, you know, if you're listening, you can't hear or see me do this. But the truck would have had to roll down the hill and then... Backwards, turn around. Yes, backwards, go up the hill and then rest, rest face down in the ditch. It makes no sense. Physically, I just feel like it would make way more sense if the truck rolled back and then came to a stop at the bottom of the ditch with the back end in the ditch. So it was still facing the proper way as if it went backwards, but you're saying it went down all the way into the ditch, then came back up the other side, then came back face down into the ditch. Correct. Even though it's a very steep, like V-shaped ditch. Like there's just no way. I, I can't fathom, you know, in regards to physics, how the a ditch truck, is too deep. Yes, would have gone, would have been able to roll all the way back and then pin him. I don't know. It makes no sense. The tires were not on top of Grant. So I don't know. I just, how could you as a parent stand back while your son is in danger? You don't know if he is alert. You don't know anything. Like how, how do you not have your hands on the scene? It just makes no sense to me. I can't stand back when I see a stranger in danger, let alone my own child. Mm-hmm. So Grant had one large laceration to the back of his head and a bruise on his jaw. But other than that, there were no injuries to Grant, no rashes from being dragged on the pavement. There was no, like, heat or burns from a car that had been running for over an hour. There was just nothing that would have indicated he was dragged along the pavement and then, like, the, the injuries just do not match up. We also heard Aaron say that he assumed the truck was not put in park, as if he accidentally pushed the shifter into reverse instead of park. But the truck was in park and turned off. And once they got the black box out of the truck, they were able to determine that the last movements in the car were weight in the driver's seat, and then the car drove and then was turned off. So like the way there's a there's a video on Instagram where Angie explicitly 
explains like what this black box shows, there is just no way the black box does not corroborate Aaron's story. It's showing somebody in the driver's seat and then turning the car off. So there's just no way. Well, it's hard to imagine him getting drug all the way down this hill Mm -hmm. and the truck goes backwards and then it comes back up in the ditch and then goes back down and pins him against the ditch. Mm -hmm. Like I can't, I haven't seen the scene like you're talking about, but it just sounds kind of unfathomable. Yeah. So I have a picture of it, actually. I'll just go ahead and show it to you. But it ju- it does. It makes no sense. So I'm going to show you the the um, truck in the ditch, and I'm going to post this to our um, Instagram, our social media, and everything as well. But that is how the truck was positioned in the ditch. Oh, let me get the other one out. And that's the view of it. So do you see how it would have had to... It just makes yeah. no sense. Okay, so I was picturing a way longer hill. It's like literally a 30-yard parking lot. Like there's enough room to like back up and turn around to go out the lot. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it doesn't – yeah, it definitely doesn't make sense. And, you know, if you if he's being dragged along the pavement, you would expect to find possibly blood on the pavement or some sort of rash on his body. There was no damage to his clothing, no damage to his shoes. Yeah, none Nothing. of it makes sense. It does not make sense. So when EMT arrived, the three men who Aaron referenced in that 911 call, nowhere to be found. They were never identified, and when police arrived, they weren't able to locate any other witnesses besides Aaron. Grant was laying on his back with his head towards the building. He was positioned between the tires. The tires, again, were not on top of him. The medical examiner determined that his cause of death was from cardiac oh, arrest. he died. You didn't ever say he died. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, he died. Oh. Mm-hmm. So sucks. his cause of death was from cardiac arrest, despite there not being an autopsy. Aaron was explicit in that he didn't want an autopsy. He didn't want um, like life flight. He didn't want like literally any life-saving measures to save Grant. He declined. Isn't that the biggest red flag ever? Like how do they even allow that? I truly don't know. And he's an adult. He's 18. So I don't, I don't, I don't understand. So she also, the medical examiner, recorded blunt trauma and traumatic brain injury on that report. And nurses at the hospital recorded a single laceration with bleeding on Grant's skull and three bruises, one on his jaw, one near his left hip, and one on his right thigh. But that was it. There were no abrasions from being dragged, no burns from being under the vehicle. Nothing. No broken bones, no other major wounds that you might expect to have after being dragged by a vehicle. By 9.30 that morning, Sumner Regional Medical Center released Grant's body to go to the funeral home. There was no post-mortem examination requested, and like I said earlier, no autopsy. The option to donate his organs was also denied. This was all chosen and signed by Aaron without any consent from Angie, despite the fact that Grant was living with Angie. Grant's vehicle was also released to Aaron, and Aaron continued driving the truck after the accident without ever getting any kind of inspection on it to figure out why or how it would just pop out of gear, roll backwards down a hill, and then pop itself back into park. Usually when a car is involved in a freak accident like this, there is some sort of inspection done, or maybe there's an indication of a recall, but that simply never happened. And Aaron continued to keep driving it. Aaron actually took the truck to a claims adjuster to assess any damage done to the truck, and the claims adjuster listed the truck as totaled, 
even though it was still totally drivable and Aaron drove it for months after Grant died. So Angie went to Aaron's house about a week after Grant died so that she could see the truck. And to her amazement, Grant's baseball gear was in the back seat. So why would his baseball gear be in the back seat if Aaron insisted that he was behind the truck at the truck bed to retrieve it? Grant was a creature of habit, according to the one who knew him best, and that was Angie. He always kept his gear in the back seat, not in the truck bed. Again, Aaron's story is just not adding up. But you know what wasn't in the back seat or in the truck bed or anywhere to be found for that matter? Grant's baseball bat. About a week after Grant's death, his funeral was held, and naturally, Aaron spoke at the funeral. His behavior at the funeral was odd, performative. A lot of people who attended felt really uncomfortable by his speech because he practically downplayed Grant's death and called it just a godly thing with little to no emotion. About your own kid. Your own kid. To say that your own kid's freak accident death is a godly thing. That's weird. That's weird. In September, weeks after Grant's death, Gracie filed for a restraining order against her father. She brought a friend of Grant's and a friend of hers to the hearing for support, and they even testified in support of Gracie, but the judge once again dismissed them. It truly baffles me that a man would still fight so hard to keep seeing his daughter after she so vehemently wants nothing to do with him and is actually so terrified of him. Is it not a red flag that he keeps pushing to get contact with her, even though she wants so badly to be so far away from him? And they, and they make it so obvious to the judges and everybody. Yes. In October, Gracie is finally granted a restraining order against her father, and the restraining order prohibits him from going to the school. But he keeps showing up at the school, and the staff at the school does nothing about it, despite knowing that it explicitly says that in the restraining order. It got to a point where he kept showing up at her school, so Gracie stopped going to school altogether. She started having panic attacks. She was breaking out in hives because of this intense psychological—that's a tough word to say—psychological stress and trauma. Because he's mentally fucked with her for years. Yes. And nobody's listening to her. Mm -hmm. And she's safe nowhere. She's literally not safe anywhere, except maybe at her mom's, but even then— she runs the risk of police just showing up to take her. Right. And they've done it. They've done it. So, like, how do you rest? On June 16th of 2021, the headmaster of the school, Robbie Mason, made a statement in regards to that check Aaron forged eight years prior. Eight years have gone by, and he's finally like, let me make a declaration about what really happened here. He said that he was aware of a social media page that's called Freedom for Gracie on Instagram. I suggest you go follow it. So on this account, there's posts about this entire ordeal. You're going to find way, way, way more details than I can possibly include in just one episode. So I do recommend you go follow that Instagram account. But on that account, there were posts made about this stolen check. So... It's interesting to me that it took eight years for the headmaster to come out and make this statement. I have to wonder what the real incentive was for him to make this statement. But he says that any implications or insinuations that Mr. Solomon stole or misappropriated misappropriated money from GCA, Grace Christian Academy, is false and that the money was actually owed to him. But if that were the case, why would he have to forge the signature? Why not go 
go about it in the way that is appropriate through the appropriate means. Right. Just get a normal check. Yeah. Or if it's owed to you, I don't know. It just, that makes no sense. Meanwhile, the leaders at Grace Chapel claim that Christians don't sue each other. But just so you know, Aaron, who is a member of their church, is currently suing more than 20 people, including a classmate of Gracie's, Anna Smith, for a, for giving video testimony about her talks with Grant, Gracie, and school counselors. Aaron's suing just anybody and everybody. So D-Bag's coming for us now. Well, I only refer to statements that have been published, reports that have come from actual witnesses, so I'm just repeating the truth. So other students and former church members are now also coming out to say that there are so many problems within Grace Chapel and Grace Christian Academy. People have come out to defend Gracie and Grant and Angie by saying that they've witnessed Aaron's behavior before for themselves and that they regret not saying something sooner. Now, why have the courts, Aaron and his attorney, insisted that Angie is an unfit parent when so many others, including medical professionals, testify otherwise? That's an important question that needs to be answered. It seems so obvious to me that the main driving factor behind all of this is power and money. On behalf of Aaron and his quote-unquote friends at the church, I don't know, this just screams red flags, and I can't understand for the life of me why this isn't more widely reported, why no arrests have been made, why at every door it's been slammed in their face, at every door of the people who are meant and assigned to protect this community are slamming the doors in the faces of every single victim. It really baffles me. So to help Gracie and Angie in their fight, you can donate at their GoFundMe, which will be linked in the show notes. There's also a petition that you can sign to hopefully open up an investigation into Grant's suspicious death. And to help spread the word, you can share this episode and or use the hashtags, hashtag Freedom for Gracie and hashtag Justice for Grant. I also want to credit Shannon Ashley from Medium.com for her excellent coverage of this case. She has actually been sent cease and desist letters from Grace Chapel, the church, in regards to all of her reporting on this. And she's written a few articles that I was able to reference for this episode. So like I said earlier, go find that account, Freedom for Gracie, on Instagram. Show your support. Spread the word. And hopefully there will be some positive updates that I can bring to you in the future I really hope justice is served in this case because it certainly hasn't been yet. Freaking crazy. That's super sad. Mm-hmm. And these people are just having to put up with the fact that nobody's there for them to really help them. I know. And, you know, the thing is, is like I mentioned before, this is a 45-minute episode. There are so many more details that I had to leave out because I just needed to keep it, you know, short and sweet, essentially. But there are so many details. There's a website dedicated to this with the entire timeline of all the events. And there's screenshots. There's screenshots of emails and text messages. There's video recordings. The Instagram page has more than 300 posts. I went through all the posts. There's so many videos. You can watch Aaron's speech at the funeral to see just for yourself how odd and performative it was. Um, There's so much. So please, I implore you to go and share the word about this to get it in front of somebody who will actually listen, because that's my pray. My prayer for this entire story is that somebody will eventually listen to this family and justice will 
will come. As mm-hmm. of right now, nothing has happened. Aaron's just enjoying himself at the Masters recently. Just, you know, living the freaking dream. It makes no sense. That's crazy. Mama. Mystery. Out. Bye.